KCR Studios in Kansas City and the Missouri Humanities Council, this is Hungry for Mo, a podcast about the stories behind the iconic foods that shape our region. I'm Natasha Bailey, a chef, cheese enthusiast, and home gardener. And I'm Jenny Vergara, a freelance writer and the founder of The Test Kitchen, an underground supper club in Kansas City. All right, Jenny, this episode is all about the famous Missourian and visionary, George Washington Carver. Today, we're going to debunk some of the myths and get to know the man. Dr. George Washington Carver went far beyond peanuts. I'm sure that you have, well, actually, I'm going to ask you, what do you know about George Washington Carver? Peanuts. (laughs) I mean, literally, that's what I know about him. And we were all handed some coloring sheet in school with him standing there holding peanuts. So I I think my, my memory of him was he was some sort of businessman and obviously was a peanut farmer. We're going to take time to appreciate (laughs) this often overlooked and sometimes misunderstood man. To help us get there, here's a recording of him from 1939. So you can just kind of hear what he sounded like and get an idea of who George Washington Carver was. Dr. Carver, do you consider yourself a chemist? We have to be very careful lest the ego comes in, a person that can bake a reasonably good cake or a reasonably good pan of biscuit can't go out and put up a shingle and say that they are good goops, but they simply use the kettle or pan as a means to carry out the end. So I simply use the chemical laboratory to find certain things that I'm looking for. I will say this, listening to his voice, I'm struck by the the tone and the cadence of it. He really has a very unique way of speaking, and it's uh, lilting. It's almost like music. Sometimes it is uh, wise not to look for too much appreciation. The main thing is to be sure you're right and go ahead, regardless of whether people appreciate it or whether they don't. Because in time, they will appreciate it. George became commonly known for the peanut because he made over 300 different uses for it. He broke the plant completely down and then found ways to rebuild it and reuse it. We're going to start with foods that he made with peanuts. We've got salted peanuts, peanut butter, regular peanut butter, peanut butter flour, butter rum, peanut milk, pancake flour, chocolate-coated peanuts, peanut butter cookies, which I thought were delicious. Me and my kids made one of the recipes from his bulletin just the other day. For this recipe, we're supposed to, use, we're supposed to cream butter and sugar, add eggs well beaten, then we add milk and flour, flour to taste, vanilla, and the peanuts last. Drop one spoonful to the cooking in well-greased pans. Alright, so now we've got our cookie dough made. Drop little spoonfuls onto our cookie sheets and let them bake. And then we'll do a taste test. Not too bad. Dry. A little dry. A little dry. But I mean, for a 1930s recipe, not bad. Yeah. Yeah. The cookies were great, although very healthy. And not gonna lie, my puppy Oliver loves them as his new favorite dog treats. George Washington Carver made chop suey sauce with peanuts, Horseshire sauce, mock chicken, mock veal cutlets, cream cheese, pimento cheese, a nut sage cheese, all using peanuts. 
Wait, wait. So all the vegan things that we have today yes. is what you're telling me he created. With peanuts. With peanuts, right. Which is like the cashew cheese that we have today. He just made peanut cheese. Which is so inspiring for the 1920s. And peanut protein or peanut meat. Yes. Um, his little mock veal. <laughs> with Mock veal? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, he's got a lot of things. And then he's he, the godfather of vegetarian and vegan cuisine. Yes. And then he made laundry soap, um, a sweeping compound for your floors, which cleaned at the same time as getting the dirt up. He had medicines, rubbing oil, iron tonic, an emulsion for bronchitis. Uh, he also had some laxatives in there and a little goiter treatment. I felt that we did not know enough about the efficacy of oils in the art of healing. So I started out to find as far as possible the value of uh, some of these oils. And I think one of the most important things uh, to remember is he used peanuts. Um, he recommended it as a crop because peanuts are good for the soil. They pull nitrogen out of the air and they put it into the soil. And he did this about 1920s and it ended up being his lasting legacy and kind of overshadowed everything else that he had done in his life. Okay, so more than peanuts. What, what is it? What is it that we need to know about him? Well, I'll take you from the beginning. George Washington Carver was born enslaved around 1864. He lived on a farm owned by Moses and Susan Carver in Diamond, Missouri. Soon after he was born, he and his mother were kidnapped and taken to Arkansas. They eventually found Carver, but they never found his mother. So he returned to the Carver's farm. But when he returned, he was sick with whooping cough. So Moses and Susan Carver took him and his brother under their wing, and as a child, being orphaned and sickly, he spent a lot of time in the forest. He never really had to work the fields because it was just a little too hard on him. But there is where he learned and to love the wonders of nature. So he found himself really in those moments of being alone in, in the solace, tranquility, and the just quietness of nature. And that had a huge impact on him and really solidified his relationship with God. He felt God all around him and felt like the, <laughs> this is gonna sound a little crazy, but he felt like all of the rocks and trees and leaves and everything that were around him were speaking to him. So he took that as a way to spike his curiosity and it made him wanna know more. At nearly 12 years old, George decides he wants to get an education. Alone and on foot, he walks about 10 miles from Diamond, Missouri to Neosho, Missouri. He really wanted to start his own path to freedom. And there in Neosho, he met a free black couple, Andrew and Mariah Watkins. Mariah was a midwife, and she had tons of knowledge of plants and their healing powers. She taught George and stressed the importance of using his talents to empower his people. Eventually, he got accepted to Highland College in Highland, Kansas. But when he arrived and they saw he was African-American, they turned him away. So instead, George eventually made his way to Iowa. He was accepted to Simpson College, where he discovered that he wanted to be an artist and that he was an amazing artist. There he really thrived, and eventually he got really into horticulture. George became the first black student to get his master's at Iowa State University and the first black faculty member ever at the school. What an incredible story. 
seriously, for for a, a, a small black child in Missouri to find his way kind of time and time again after, and, you know, after things are kind of taken away from him, you know, he finds, new people find him and take him in. Yes. I like to think of that as like um, Missouri spirit, you know, to right. just kind of be that neighbor, be that person to be there and help someone and lend a helping hand. I think that that, Absolutely. that makes me really proud. It's not like George Washington Carver came out of nowhere, right? This is part of, the, you know, the whole community's move forward. Rafia Zoffer is a professor at Washington State University. It's like the expression, right? I'm making a way out of no way. She wrote a wonderful book that I got at the beginning of the summer called Recipes for Respect, African-American Meals and Meanings. And she is really good at explaining um, foodways. Do you know what foodways are, Jenny? I don't. So foodways is kind of where um, culture and history collide. American foodways are African-American, African, they're European, and they're Native American. And people often don't realize. I mean, that is that is the greatness of the United States. So she focuses on, on that and preserving foodways, which is what she believed that, um, that George Washington Carver did. He, he was trying to preserve foods and ways of making food and getting food for future farmers to give them kind of a roadmap of how to how to be regenerative farmers in their practices you know it's like passing the torch i mean carver so he is so underrated and of course i was one of like all those little school children who knew about you know like oh george washington carver invented peanut butter george washington carver did not invent peanut butter that is one of the myths. He made it, but he did not invent it. Canadian chemist Marcellus Gilmore Edson did. Rafia Zoffer has a beautiful way of highlighting Black history and really giving a voice to the food movement that sometimes gets forgotten or misunderstood. The scales fell from my eyes. More than peanuts, I thought. Hmm. George Washington Carver, we should start with the myths because he's so much more than the myths that we hear. Yes. Yes, he is. You know, and that's, you know, this is true of so many people. I mean, I'm, who do, immediately comes to mind? Rosa Parks, right? Rosa Parks, she was tired and she sat down because it was the last straw. Forgetting that there had been years of social activism on her part, years of pushing for civil rights, but the soundbite, the thing, the little image, and the story that kids get and then passes on to the elders is that, you know, she was just working hard and, you know, she just couldn't take it anymore. No, it was part of a life struggle. And Carver is like that. So many people who are not famous in the way that Carver is or famous in the way that Parks were doing the same kind of thing, the daily struggles that are not you know, put up in lights that are not memorialized either in histories or in children's books. He gave up a job at Iowa State and he said, my people are calling me. He had a mission. His career led him to increased respect for overall Black intellect and scientific prowess. So his life constituted its own, if indirect, debunking of white supremacy. So when he was he was getting into circles and getting into fields of agriculture that you didn't see a lot of 
black professors in. He was actually the only um, African-American in the country that had a degree in agriculture at the time. Booker T. Washington came looking for him to go teach at Tuskegee. And it's interesting because in some ways he really didn't grow up like in a small black town, right? He was not at a big, he did not, wasn't raised on a, like a game plantation in like Georgia or Louisiana where he'd be like tons of black folks around him. He really had the, the life of a fairly isolated African-American person who was enslaved, right? This small, like maybe there were only two or three people on the farm. So it's not like, it's not like there wasn't blackness all around him, but he didn't have necessarily, as a young person, other than his brother, have that sort of web, right? That, that matrix. But he knew it was there and he knew how important it was, how fundamental it was. In 1896, Booker T. Washington sent George a letter offering him a job at Tuskegee University in Alabama, which had just been founded. Booker T. Washington needed to create an agriculture department, so he sent him a letter asking him to come and teach at the school, and Carver wrote back to Booker T. Washington and said, It has always been one ideal of my life to be the greatest good to the greatest number of my people possible, and to this end, I have been preparing myself for this moment for years, feeling as I do that this education is the key to unlocking the golden door of freedom to our people. George remained at Tuskegee for the next 47 years until his death. He needed to be there. If Tuskegee was a place where his people could get an education, he struggled to get an education. So that's why Tuskegee was so important to him, and also that model of Black self-sufficiency that Booker T. Washington was preaching. He actually came up with a wagon. It was called the Jessup Wagon, and he would take it to small towns and fairs and uh, different festivals. And on the, on the actual wagon, he would have different foods to show them different hands-on techniques for farming and ways to preserve the food that they were growing. So he, he took the show on the road, which was pretty unheard of for that time period. He was ahead of everybody. The thing that I loved about the Jessup Wagon is that it was going to places where sharecroppers weren't getting a lot of attention. And he was able to go and really just educate them and help give them a leg up using their own land so that they could make it through the right. winters or whatever seasons they needed to without having to rely on anyone else. Right, it's the company store, right? If you're just the old places where you can get stuff is, you know, owned by rapacious whites, you know, or even not too rapacious, and they they'll overcharge any sharecropper, you know, white, black, or if they were any Native American, you know, they were just going to overcharge people, right? That's kind of what people did. He said, "Don't plot, you know, don't plant fence to fence." in your commodity crop, in tobacco, in, com you know, in cotton. Leave some room, right? So you can be, that's that Tuskegee thing, right? So you can be self-sufficient, have a kitchen garden, maybe keep a couple of chickens. So let me get this straight. George Washington Carver rides into towns on this food truck and essentially teaches local farmers everything he knows about science and the business of farming and sustainable agriculture. So how did that go over? When he would go into these towns, the politics of the South 
hindered his work in a lot of places. And instead of getting discouraged, he kept pushing forward. He kept packing up his Jessup wagon and going to other towns and trying to promote regenerative farming to more and more farmers. And when he went to the South, there were black and white poor farmers. So he just focused on everyone that didn't have the means to make it. So it ended up to where he was helping everyone. Interesting. So black and white farmers. Yeah, he's just, he's hes so inspiring. He was so gentle, but he was so firm in his resolve to have a better life and a better life for not just himself, but all the people. I mean, how, how many farmers can really, particularly during the season, even to this day, oh, let's go take some classes in agricultural extension. Could, wasn't gonna happen, particularly if you're pretty much a subsistence farmer or a sharecropper. So he got this idea, Jessup is named after the Northern philanthropist who funded it. And I'm gonna take the store or the class to the people. So it was a mobile classroom. I loved how he used like purslane and he would use it for salads and pe- most people thought it was just a weed. So he would get, he would use purslane, dandelions, lamb's quarter to make, um, to make beautiful salads. He had, when I was reading about him, he had some, some of his bulletins remind me a little bit of uh, Rachel Ray because it's like everyday cooking and healthy meals for your everyday cuisine. And it's just like, you don't really see that quite often in that time period. Yeah, he would say everyday and delicious or healthy and nutritious. Well, and so the word everyday is, to me is kind of code for easy, right? Not, not intimidating, not fussy. Everyday means something you can quickly put on your table that nourishes your family. So still to this day, the word everyday kind of is to speak to, to literally every person and kind of be inclusive. So I think that's probably what he was going for. But Um, It occurs to me that he really, I mean, so foraging is obviously a big thing now in a lot of the chefs are getting into, you know, their own butchery and then going out and they either have a forager that goes into the woods and looks for things that, you know, different, um, you know, ramps, obviously, and, and uh, morel mushrooms during that season, uh, fiddlehead ferns and that kind of stuff. Oh my gosh, you are so correct because mushrooms was another love of his. He he studied mushrooms. He studied so so much and so many things that it's it's just almost it's it's almost like how can you not um just dig a little deeper. That's one thing I found about researching him is that I just wanted to keep knowing more and more and more and there's so much information about him and for someone who went through so many hardships and struggles, he was so optimistic and for the people. I mean, again, that goes back to his his core beliefs about the world, right? That we share the world. He worked with white companies and some people, you know, could say, oh yeah, he worked with white capitalism and he, you know, he was a toady. And I think he was thinking like, again, how might this benefit my people? Or he might just have been doing it because they asked him. And he didn't see any reason why not. We don't know. But I like to think that he thought it's kind of a real politic decision. They have something we will be able to use, right? Whether it's money money or other kinds of support. And also he didn't think that, you know, a good health or good farming should belong to one group more than another. Really, his the gifts he has given, not only to people of color, just in his lifetime, 
but the things that continue to live on about him. Fascinating. Really, really fascinating. He really has done so much more than just the peanut. There's one part of Rafia's book that just kind of sums it up for me. It says Carver's desire to bring self-sufficiency and tasty meals to the struggling agriculture workers was every bit as revolutionary and creative as his famed experiments with peanuts. He's never going to get away from the peanut, but it's so nice to be able to bring all of his skills and attributes to the forefront. He may not have been a Du Bois, but behind the scenes he was supporting civil rights activity. He was funneling money into certain organizations and movements. He could not publicly claim or say he was affiliated with because he knew that would sink the cause of Tuskegee with his white benefactors, right? It was, you know, as he might say in his down-home way, he didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He knew better. He knew better. (laughs) If we were to introduce George Washington Carver into our teaching and curriculums more, Mm -hmm. what kind of impact do you think that that could have on future generations? Well, I mean, it would only be positive. I think it could only be positive because one of the things that besides him being, well, remember his graduate work was on mushrooms, mycology, right? He was a mycologist. I love that. But that he was not only a scientist, but that he was an artist, right? And in terms of both being an artist of the plate, but also a visual artist, he was a talented, you know, draftsman, a painter, um, that he was a, you know, he was a figure they would be a role model in so many ways, right? You know, now they talk about STEAM education, right? It was all about STEM, but he's kind of in the embodiment of STEAM, of a STEAM education, right? Because it's science, technology, and arts. It wasn't just about growing food, but it's also about feeding the soul. At one point he says that sometimes a bouquet of flowers will do as much for someone as you know, as the most nourishing meal that 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 this part of us, right, our soul needs nourishment, our sort of visual imagination needs nourishing also. What an inspiration. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, kind of a Renaissance man, right? Science, technology, arts, and you know, way after the <laughs> a Renaissance man way after the Renaissance. But I mean, really someone who was proficient in all of these things. Well, one thing is he was one of the first, um, he was going to go and speak at the Capitol about peanuts, his work he had done with peanuts. And they gave him five minutes. He started, he set out all of his samples and started talking and they gave him five more minutes. And then they gave him five more minutes and then they kept giving him minutes and then they gave him all the time he needed. They were so enthralled with everything that he was saying and all of the things that he was teaching them that they just let him have that time. And his whole goal was just to open the door so that people could have these conversations and see his own humanity. The last 10 years of his life, he was pretty sick, so he didn't do a lot of public speaking. He never had any kids, he never married, but he, his students were like his children. So he would, he had, he was at the school for 47 years. So if you can only imagine how many students you'll see in that amount of time. But when those kids left the school, they would write. And one thing I found super fascinating was that he wrote more than 25,000 letters in his life. George Washington Carver died in 1943. Soon after his death, a monument was placed in his honor in Diamond, Missouri, 
It was the first time a national monument was made in honor of someone other than a United States president. For so many years, people have just thought of George Washington Carver as the peanut guy, overlooking all his other accomplishments as a leader in civil rights, his innovations in plant-based foods, sustainable agriculture, and the bigger impact he made as a teacher and influencer on Black students and farmers. It's like when we overlook these deeper aspects of his work and his legacy, it sets us up to perpetuate some of history's same mistakes. Oh, Tasha. Hi. I got to interview Michael Pearl. He's a farmer in Parkville, Missouri in Platte County. His great-grandfather, David Pearl, purchased the farm in 1890. So he was freed, bought the land, and they have had the land in their family ever since, which is remarkable. David was born into slavery, 1852, around the same time as actually George Washington Carver in Missouri. I chose Michael because his family has one of the longest standing black farms in Missouri. His family is at the Overland Park Farmers Market pretty much every weekend. They're so personable and welcoming, you'll visit them over and over again. Oh, we met at the market, right, Natasha? Yes, we did. <laughs> I, I, I just enjoy talking to him. There aren't many black farmers to connect with right now in Missouri, and less than 2% of American farmers are black, according to the USDA. So why do you think there's so few black farmers in Missouri? It's very hard to get a farming loan. It's very hard to buy land. There have been court cases that kind of highlight how discriminatory the practices are of the USDA. So it's been a hindrance to a lot of people starting farms and holding on to their farms. I thought Michael was super inspiring because they've been on that land for 130 years. And there have been many studies that have shown that um, there's been a 98% decrease in black farmers between 1920 and 1997. And I'm pretty sure that number's grown to now. But I've also, this is the first year that I've seen um, legislation go to Congress that really highlights the disparities in um, that black farmers face and kind of trying to find solutions to those things. So I think that pretty soon we'll see a resurgence of farms run and owned by African-Americans. And that's why I love uh, Michael's story, because he was able to leave home, go play on a football scholarship, then go to New York and do amazing things in the marketing world, and then come back home and use his creativity to uh, support his own family and do what he loves by working on the farm. When I came back, you certainly have a greater appreciation for the land, you know, for what we had learned over the years. And really what had, you know, been instilled in me and in my DNA, which, you know, to, to create and to grow. The contribution the family, the ancestors would have made to the feeding of America over the America and, and the world, right? Michael's family is one of the first Black families in Platte County. They faced a lot of different discrimination in a multitude of situations, but they were steadfast and true to themselves. They fought to keep the land and kept it working through all of the problems and just kept pushing forward. I think that is kind of the theme of the Black farmer in America. It's the resilience to go out every day and work for yourself and just keep pushing forward, no matter the hurdle which to me shines a bright light on the effect that George Washington Carver has had on the black farmer, not only in Missouri, but all over the country, and how deeply his work has changed the world. 
Here for Mo is a production of KCUR Studios with support from the Missouri Humanities Council. This episode was produced and mixed by Suzanne Hogan with editing from Gabe Rosenberg. Our team also includes Mackenzie Martin. Mike Russo is the head chef of KCUR Studios. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Primary Color. I'm Jenny Vergara. And I'm Natasha Bailey. Next week, we'll be looking at how Kansas City created the Crock-Pot and revolutionized women's lives in the 1970s. Not just in how they cooked, but how they spent their time. We were busy creating recipes that were convincing people that perhaps the slow cooker or the crock pot was something more than just a piece of meat with a can of soup on it. Don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to Hungry for Mo in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also love hearing from you. Shoot us an email at hungry at kcur.org or find us on Twitter. KCUR is at KCUR. Find me on Instagram at JJ Vergara. And I'm on Instagram at EatableCasey. Hey, I'm Mackenzie Martin, one of the producers for Hungry for Mo. And I just wanted to jump in and say one last thing. These kinds of deep dives take a serious amount of work. And they're really only possible thanks to people like you, who listen and support the work we're doing with a donation. So if you like Hungry for Mo or any other podcast from KCUR Studios, please consider supporting it. You can go to kcur.org slash donate. Even $10 seriously helps us out. Thank you so much. Hey, Gina Kaufman here. I'm the host of Real Humans, another podcast from KCUR Studios. And I just wanted to pop in to say if you like the stories about Missouri food on Hungry for Mo, you might also like my podcast where I hang out with Kansas Cityans doing really cool things every week. One of my favorite recent episodes is about a woman who opened a coffee shop that serves a traditional Mexican coffee drink called Café de Olla. But to understand why it's so important, you have to hear her mom's immigration story. If that sounds like something you might enjoy, just search for Real Humans by Gina Kaufman wherever you get your podcasts. So the name comes from it's combining four separate harvesting operations. Reaping... Threshing, <laughs> gathering, <laughs> and you're gonna have to do that again. Winnowing. <laughs> I'm like, get out of here! <laughs> I'm like, wait, old Yeller, old Yeller has joined us. <laughs> he, he's like, you're not looking at me. Oh, sorry, guys. I gotta take one second to get that dog out of here. <laughs>